There is something about that name, isn't there? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We are beginning this journey over the next number of weeks, working through a series that I'm titled Divergent. How do we live out the Sermon on the Mount? The word divergent means to be different. It means to be outside of the norm. And what we're going to see as we begin this journey over these next number of weeks is what does it mean to live the Sermon on the Mount? Not just read it, not just study it, not just memorize certain passages, but what does it mean to actually live out what Scripture says? We're beginning this journey through what some have called the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest man who ever lived. The first person to coin that statement was Augustine. And he did it in one of his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. But not everybody agrees with the statement I just said, that this is the greatest message ever preached by the greatest man who ever lived. There are some who find the message that Jesus preaches in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, some of them are offended by what Jesus says. We sit here and we are in shock of that statement all by itself, but there is a lady named Anne Rand who wrote a book called Atlas Shrugged. And this is what she says about the teachings of Jesus. She says, regarded its prescriptions are among the vilest ever uttered. She also regarded Christian morality as a poison. Obviously, she needs Jesus. But listen to what Gandhi Gandhi said about the Sermon on the Mount. He said the words to the Sermon on the Mount went straight to his heart. In this passage of Scripture, we have a gold mine of what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a child of the King? And what you're going to learn this morning is how to live a life that reflects and glorifies Jesus being in your life. As we work into this this morning, I want to give you some background on the Sermon on the Mount just to kind of give us a running start into what we're going to look at this morning. You can find a Reader's Digest version of the Sermon on the Mount over in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. How many of you remember Reader's Digest? Y'all remember those? Listen, when you're in middle school and you've got a book report, Reader's Digest is your best friend. It is. My mom used to get these little three-volume books, and they were the condensed versions of the books. Man, for somebody who had to write papers, that was a great resource because it abbreviated everything from a longer book. So if you wanted to get a, a condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount, you turn over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. But here's the one thing I want you to pay attention to as we work through this series. The sermon that we're going to read about over the next number of weeks, the sermon does not teach men and women how to live to get into the kingdom, but how men and women in the kingdom should live. Let me repeat that. It doesn't tell us how to live in the kingdom, but because we're already in the kingdom of God, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, these passages of Scripture are going to teach us how we should live. The other reminder is these passages should be applied to us as individuals even today as they were presented and preached 2,000 plus years ago because as citizens of the kingdom, we are waiting for that manifestation when Jesus returns. But until he comes back, these are the words to live by. If you were to spend some time over in Luke's gospel and some in Matthew's, you're going to see a balance 
The things that you're going to learn about is how to deal with attitudes and conflicts, opposition, materialism, flattery, love, enemies, reward, mercy. And that's just to name a few of the things you learn as you study these scriptures. Now, something else that I want you to understand is that Luke's gospel in Matthew, it's a part of the message here and part of the message over in Luke that makes a longer message. The sermon is actually a longer sermon. This might surprise you, but Jesus actually preached longer than 10 minutes when he preached on the, on the side of that hill. But he had something to share for the people who were his followers, and I'm going to explain that a little bit more in just a second. You're also going to see in this passage that Jesus is introduced as the next, the new, the better Moses, the one who's going to bring the law and bring it into fulfillment. As you study the Sermon on the Mount, you can write it in three sections. The Beatitudes, how to have ethics in how you deal with things, and then how do we contrast what Jesus taught versus what the Pharisees teach. There also are a number of interpretations. How do we apply, how do we interpret this particular passage of Scripture? Here's the interpretation I want you to hold on to as we study this passage, and it is simply this. It's that we are kingdom citizens. These are principles for us to understand our character in our conduct as followers of Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, who is a Bible scholar, he put it this way. He said that the sermon is a description of the lifestyle of those who belong to the kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is going to teach us. The lifestyle of those who belong to the kingdom. Augustine said this, it is a perfect standard of Christian living. This morning, if you got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5, you'll notice there, there are eight Beatitudes. Eight different things that Jesus is reminding us of what it means to be a follower. These are blessings, these are encouragements. It's possible he's drawing from Moses over in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29, where it says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. These are words of encouragement. These are words that remind us of what it means to be that child of God. If you want to understand a definition of the word beatitude, the word beatitude comes from the Latin word betus, which means happy or blessed. In the Greek, it's markeus. But it means to be blessed. It means to be happy. It's this idea that captures what it means to be a recipient of God's grace, and not only God's grace, but also God's favor. But I also remind you this morning, this is not about an emotion. It's not about an emotion. It's about a transformation of your heart in a way you should live because you have experienced salvation, those of you who know Jesus Christ. You've experienced salvation. Now that you've experienced that salvation, what you're going to see in Scripture is how to live a life so the rest of the world can understand the decision you made to be a child of God. And the way I want to approach these Beatitudes this morning is I want to think of the word delight. That we should delight in these different things as kingdom citizens of heaven. We have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and we have been brought into a right relationship. So what does that mean? The prayer is this. 
And what Jesus is going to show us this morning as the Beatitudes are going to remind us and teach us what it means to live as salt and live as light in this world. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, we learn this, that you are to delight in your spiritual bankruptcy apart from God's grace. Look with me, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you look on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, many believe this is where this, this moment in Scripture took place. And there's a hillside, and you can stand on the top of that hillside and look down towards the Sea of Galilee. And you can picture Jesus sitting on this hill. Scripture says he went up to get higher than the people so he could hear, so they could hear him as he taught and as he spoke. But here's what I want you to understand. Notice what Scripture says. He was seated and his disciples came to him. Now there's a crowd of people who are listening to this message. A majority are disciples and some are just there to be there. So what you see taking place in this moment are there two concentric circles. Two circles that interlock. In one circle we have the crowd. And in the other circle we have the disciples. You have his disciples sitting in that one group, and you have the crowd sitting in the other. And notice what he tells both of these audiences. And he says this, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Look at verse 3. Why are they blessed? Because it says the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This morning, there are some of you who are spiritual beggars. Some of you this morning are paupers before God. And that is a good thing because you understand that you are made righteous before a holy God. And you should take the light in that righteousness. And why should you do that? Because you're a citizen of heaven. Think about it for just a moment. You are a citizen of heaven. Jesus has changed your life. That is who he's talking to in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Over in Psalm 86, verses 1 through 5, can give us a background for this beatitude. The scripture says this, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. It's a reminder that you have Jesus and you don't need anything else. If you have Jesus Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior, you don't need anything else. And Jesus could have stopped at this one beatitude, but he can't. He has to go further because there's a lifestyle, a change that we all go through as this child of God. As I think about verse 3, I'm reminded of the hymn, Rock of Ages. There's a verse that is not in our hymnal. There's a verse that's not in our hymnal that's part of the original writing of that hymn. And the verse goes like this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, hopeless, helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I fly as a fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. 
Here's the reminder. The writer of the Rock of Ages is reminding that you and I spiritually are crippled apart from Jesus Christ. So we rejoice because we know what's coming. We know what is next. So we're happy to the light and the fact that we are poor in spirit because we are kingdoms of heaven and that awaits us. And we know that one day we're going to be there in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And also with those who have gone before us, who have prepared the way. So you are blessed if you are poor in spirit because you will see the kingdom of God. But notice what he says next. He tells us to delight in your deep grief over sin because God will comfort you. Look with me in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How many of you have struggled with loss? How many of you have gone through a difficult time and you've wondered, who's out there? Who hears my cries? Who hears what I'm dealing with? Scripture right here says, blessed are those who mourn because they are comforted. Let me give you an example. Take your Bibles. The only time you're going to turn your Bible outside of Matthew 5 is this moment right here. Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. Look with me in verses 1 through 3. This is the good news we have for those who mourn, those who are poor in spirit. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. Scripture says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to open the prisons to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console all those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified." In Isaiah 61, we have this context. There is mourning taking place. And in Isaiah, it's the children of Israel who are mourning. The children of Israel are mourning because they've been in captivity. They've gone through all these things. And they wonder what's going to come next. In this scripture, we have a promise. Did you catch that promise that we see in Scripture? Notice what it says. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. That me in Scripture, that capital me, little e, you know who we're talking about in Scripture, don't you? It's your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because God appoints him to preach the good news to those who are hurting, the brokenhearted, to those who are mourning in their ashes and in their despair over their sin. What we learn in this verse is God has not forsaken them as they cry out to him. God has not forsaken them or forgot about them. Again, looking at Isaiah 61, look at verse 1. We're told that this person is coming, the Messiah would come to do what? To preach good tidings to the poor. In verse 2, to comfort all who mourn. In verse 3, to give them beauty for ashes and the garment of praise. That is what the Messiah is going to do. 
So based on what we see back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, here is the reminder, here is the encouragement for you this morning. Those of us who are spiritual paupers now will be spiritual billionaires in God's eternal kingdom. To be spiritually poor is to be rich in Him. And watch this and, and notice this. Listen, the world says you've got to be rich and be powerful to be somebody. In order to live a blessed life according to the world's standards, you have to have a lot of money and have a lot of things. Yet Jesus says if you are blessed, you are blessed because you are spiritually poor and oppressed because the kingdom of heaven is yours. And this is the, Jesus is the example. He's the supreme example of this verse. Think about it. Jesus empties himself, lives on this earth, dies on the cross for your sins, and now God has exalted him. And me and this mic are going to fight all day. And God has exalted him, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And you and I, as a child of God, guess what? We get to bow before him and worship him because we understand that even in mourning, there is joy. Even when our hearts are hurting, there is joy because we have a comforter. We have a friend who has mourned a loss, who has gone through suffering. And because we have one who has suffered like we go through, we have divine comfort, we have encouragement, and we have grace that comes from a Father who loves us so very much more than we deserve. That's what we see in verse 4. In verse 5, we should delight in your dependence on and in your submission to God, and he will reward you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We read that verse, and we usually take it out of context. Theodore Roosevelt once said this about William McKinley. He said that William McKinley possessed no more backbone than a chocolate eclair. And that's how we think about people who are considered meek, who are gentle. We see them as wimps. We see them as doormats. We see them as pushovers. Yet listen, here's what Scripture says. If you're meek, according to that verse, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. A person who is meek says this, not my will, but your will be done. That's what it means to be meek. It means to go before a holy God and say, God... You have my life. You have my plans. Basically, you write a blank check to the Lord and say, here, do with it what you need to. Because my life is yours. That's the definition of being meek. Because a meek person is not a weak person, but a strong person in Christ. Because when you and I are broken, it's by that saving grace of God who makes us complete when we totally surrender to God and his will. That's what it means to be meek. Again, Sinclair Ferguson, he says that meekness is the humble strength that belongs to the man who has learned to submit to difficulties, difficult experiences, difficult people, knowing that in everything God is working for his good. The meek man is the one who has stood before God's judgment and surrendered all his supposed rights. He has learned in gratitude for God's grace to submit himself to the Lord 
to be gentle with sinners. And then Sinclair Ferguson goes a little further and he makes this statement. He says that meekness, it enhances manliness and adores feminine, feminine, femininity. And it is, but look at that last part, it is a jewel polished by grace. So in your meekness, it's a jewel being polished by grace. You are showing humility by being meek. You're not a wimp, you're not a doormat, you're not a pushover. You are somebody who loves Jesus Christ and you've come to him humbly and said, not my will, but yours be done. He says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. But then look at verse 6. In verse 6, we need to delight in your longing for God and see God satisfy you in him. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is consumed by the passion for righteousness. And it's an appetite that cannot be filled. It is a thirst that cannot be quenched. They know that if they aren't hungering from God, they will literally die of thirst. If they're not hungering for God, they will starve to death. They want to be in his presence. They see what the world has to offer and have made a decision, I want what God has. So I thirst for that righteousness. I hunger for that righteousness. And notice what verse 6 says. It says, and they shall be filled. Because as a child of God, we long for him. We want to have that character, that righteous character that fills us up through what? Jesus' redeeming work on the cross and our spending time with him. Again, let me give you a parallel. The world is hungry for happiness and it is starving. The world is hungry for happiness and it is starving. Yet the Bible tells us to hunger for holiness and be satisfied. So let me ask you the question. Would you rather be hungry and have nothing or be satisfied and have everything? That's a question you have to answer as an individual. But as a child of God, my desire is to be satisfied with the things of God. To be so satisfied that I can't get enough. The boys and girls in Club 252 this past Wednesday were talking about studying the Bible. Studying the Bible and about spending time in His Word every day. And I made the statement, I asked the question, now these are boys and girls who are kindergarten through fifth grade. And I asked them the question, can you ever get to the point where you stop reading the Bible? And every one of those little boys and girls said no. Adults, you never get to a point where you stop reading the Bible. Listen, you know when you get to stop reading the Bible? When you're standing face to face with Jesus Christ. So until that day happens, you need to be in his word. Until that day happens, you need to have a hunger and a thirst for his righteousness that only comes from studying God's word. So you delight in that longing for God and he will satisfy you. Look at verse 7. You and I need to delight in graciously helping others, knowing God will graciously help you. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
Jesus says that the one who demonstrates mercy to others will receive mercy from God because mercy flows directly out of the previous four Beatitudes. We get the first four Beatitudes to get to this point. Listen, a person has to know they're spiritually bankrupt. They have to grieve over their condition. They have to submit to God's will and live in God's longing for his righteousness and hunger and thirst. It's only until you get these four can you get to that verse 7 and be able to show mercy to other people. And mercy means that you get down your hands and your knees and do what you can to restore dignity to someone who may be broken by sin. And you lift them up and you encourage them. And here's a, a statement I came across. Listen to this. How much mercy you show is almost certainly the result of how, how much mercy you know. The amount of mercy you show is based on how much mercy you know. Yes, mercy means you give to those who are in need, but mercy is also going to that person you care about and forgiving them for their sin and expressing gratitude for God and because he is the forgiver. And there's a statement in your outline this morning, and I believe this is foundational to not only verse 7, but every aspect of your walk and your life with Christ. We will never forgive anyone as much as God in Christ has forgiven us. Think about that. I will never be able to forgive someone as much as Jesus has forgiven me. I can try real hard. And there are days I know I mess up. There are days I know I stumble. And I know there are days I need to show forgiveness. But I also realize that I can show forgiveness, but I know that Jesus Christ will outshow forgiveness that I could ever give. But it's something we do. Why? Because it says again in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Because they've experienced it through Jesus Christ and his love for them. Verse 8, we sang this song just a few minutes ago. But verse 8 says this, it says, delight in a clean and pure heart, for you will enjoy eternal fellowship with God. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Remember that God is more concerned about what's inside than he is on the outside. You can do all the works, you can be involved with every committee, be at every function, but unless your heart is right with God, it doesn't amount to anything. Because God sees what's on the inside. How do we know this? Go to verse 8 again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you're pure in heart, others are going to see God through what you say and through what you do. Remember, God is more concerned about your heart than any other aspect. Over in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, they're trying to find the next king. And there is David. There's David. Scripture says that David was, was, was ruddy looking and handsome. But his brother, his older brother, had come first. And man, everybody thought that was going to be the king. And God says, I don't look at the outside. I look at the heart of the person. We see this in other places of Scripture. Matthew 12, 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Over in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19. 
but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. The condition of your heart, the inner person, that is the real you, and that is what is critical in your walk with Jesus Christ. So for you and for me to live out verse 8 of Matthew chapter 5, we have to be reminded to be pure in heart is to have a dirty heart made clean, an impure heart purified, and a filthy heart cleansed. The verse reminds us that we need to have clean hands and a pure heart. Because why? If I have a pure heart, I'm going after the things that God is instructing me and pushing me towards. His righteousness, His love, His grace, His mercy, His obedience. To be pure at heart means I'm drawing closer to God and I'm getting rid of the idols that are being put in front of me that are keeping me from following God and His righteousness in my life. There's a hymn called, Oh, for a Closer Walk with God by William Copper. And he makes this statement in the hymn. The dearest idol I have known, whatever idol that may be, help me tear it from its throne and worship only thee. How many of you are wrestling with idols this morning? Every one of us wrestles with an idol. Scripture says for me to be pure in heart so others see Jesus. But if I have an idol that is blocking me from God, how are they going to see Jesus in me and through me? And that's what Jesus is telling them on the side of this hill. He's saying you need to remove those things that keep you from being in my presence, but also that keep you from pursuing me and letting others see me in you. Look at verse 9. He tells us to delight in being a peacemaker because it gives evidence that you are a child of the God of peace. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. In 1978, Jimmy, Jimmy Carter brokered a Middle East peace agreement between Israel and Egypt. And some of you watched that live it was probably on, but I think I was six years old, so I probably wasn't paying attention. But Jimmy Carter, everybody gave Jimmy Carter so much grief about his presidency, but he fosters this peace agreement between two countries that didn't like each other. And they had this ceremony, and even a moment that they were speaking, as he's speaking before the Joint Congress, and he makes this statement. He looks at these two men who he considers friends, the prime minister from Egypt and the prime minister from Israel, and he quotes verse 9 of Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. But think about that verse for a moment. Here you have a Christian quoting that verse to a Jew and to a Muslim. And yes, these words are powerful, but I think when Jimmy Carter quoted that verse, he was misapplying the words. We have this idea that being a peacemaker means we stand between those who are going against each other, and it is to a point. 
But I think what Scripture is reminding us that a, being a peacemaker is a characteristic of being a child of God. And I think this is the definition of peacemaking that Jesus is talking about here. And I have the statement on the screen behind me. It says, peacemaking will have evangelism as its first priority, helping to make peace between man and God through the proclamation of the gospel. Yes, it involves being, bringing peace to brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't disagree with that. But being a peacemaker, I believe according to the scripture, it says, blessed are the peacemakers for they should be called the sons of God. I believe it's part of our calling to be a peacemaker means we share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus Christ. We share the gospel on a regular basis to bring peace between God and others. Think about it. If someone does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they're in conflict. They're in conflict because God doesn't know them. So God will send somebody to share the gospel. God will send somebody to bring the good news to them to bring peace between that person and back to God. So if that is our calling as a peacemaker about bringing others to Jesus Christ and bringing harmony and peace between them and God, I'm reminded of what Romans 14, 19 says. It says, therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. It's interesting, the word of peace is found in the Bible over 400 times. And Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. So peace is something that you and I should have. And here's the statement in your outline this morning. God sent his son that we might have peace with God, peace from God, and the peace of God. And you'll notice in your outline, I've given you some scripture verses to read later today to remind you what that peace really looks like. What does it mean to have peace with God, peace from God, and peace in God? Because if I'm a child of God, I'm following in his footsteps to have peace with him and bring others to have a relationship with him. Last beatitude, verses 10 through 12 we're told to delight inevitable persecution because you will receive a great reward and you are in good company. Delight inevitable persecution. Man, isn't that encouraging right there? That's something to get excited about. As a child of God, you're going to be persecuted. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Number 10 is the last beatitude. But if you have to look at verses 11 and 12 as the commentary for that verse. Now, if you read that verse alone, it sounds a little ridiculous. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who pick on you, talk about you, make fun of you, and might even hit you. We look at that and we scratch our head. But look at the phrases here. Pay attention to Scripture. Why are you persecuted, verse 10, for righteousness' sake? 
you're being persecuted because you said, I am a child of God. I am a child of God, and I know what's coming. And so as a child of God, you're going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. But then look at verse 11. You're being persecuted, and evil is being brought against you falsely. In the New King James, it says, for my sake. Underneath that word, my, you can put the word Jesus. Because of righteousness, I'm being persecuted. Because of Jesus Christ, I am being persecuted. Now, all these words come into focus. All these words start making a little more sense. Living a life that reflects the Beatitudes and the righteousness of God is an invitation to persecution. If I'm going to live out the verses we've just read, guess what? You are sending an invite to the enemy who says, I'm coming after you. And I'm bringing my friends with me. And we see this all through Scripture. Jesus tells us over in John 16, verse 33, In the world you will have tribulation. Over in John 15, 18, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And then over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus makes it perfectly clear and simple to us this morning. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have persecution. If you follow me, Jesus is telling him on the side of that hill, if you follow me and follow my example, you are going to have hard times. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be wounded. You're going to be rejected. You may lose your family, your friends, your job. You may be imprisoned. You may be tortured. You might even die for the name of Jesus Christ. But if that happens, be glad. If any of the things I just read happen, be glad. Why? Scripture says you are counted worthy before a holy God to suffer just like the apostles did for his name. So if I'm dealing with suffering, what does that mean? It shows evidence that I'm a child of God and I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Listen, if you weren't a child of God, why are they going to persecute you? If you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, why would anybody bother you? But because I am a citizen of Jesus Christ and of heaven, I will deal with persecution. But look at what he says in verse 12. He says, no matter what happens, dealing with persecution, hatred, talking about you, even dying for the cause of Christ, he says, don't worry. Why? Look at verse 12. He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward. Where? Where? Your reward is not here. Your reward is not here. Your reward is in heaven. That's what we get to look forward to. That's what we are living for. So guess what? If you're dealing with persecution, you're dealing with these things, guess what? You're in great company. Peter dealt with persecution. Paul dealt with persecution. Every one of the disciples dealt with persecution. So if you deal with that, you are in great company. So as we look through this section of Scripture, why is this passage of Scripture so important? Why does Jesus start with these particular words as he begins this message on the side of that hill, the north shore of Sea of Galilee? I think this is the idea. 
This is why you and I, I think, are in love with the Beatitudes. And here it is. We love Beatitudes because they give us a portrait of Jesus and who we are becoming in Him. When I read the Beatitudes, I see a picture of Jesus Christ because think about it. No one can sympathize with spiritual beggars more than Jesus. No one is more grieved over sin in a broken world more than Jesus. No one hungered and thirsted for righteousness more than Jesus. No one showed mercy to others more than Jesus. No one sought peace between God and man and between man and man other than Jesus. And no one suffered unjust persecution and evil against themselves more than Jesus. Again, look with me starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what do the Beatitudes mean for me and you today? It is simply this. When I look at the Beatitudes, I see Jesus. And when I look at the Beatitudes, I see who I am becoming in Jesus Christ. So here's my question for you this morning. What do you see when you look at the Beatitudes? Every head bowed and every eye closed. Some of you this morning have looked at these Beatitudes and you're already struggling. You're asking yourself, how can I live up to this? How can I even come close to living up to what Scripture says? I've got good news for you. You're not alone. Because everyone who calls himself a child of God will struggle with one of these Beatitudes. Some days it's easy to show mercy. Some days it's not. Some days it's easy to be meek. Other days it's not. Other days, some days it's easy to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And some days it's not. Jesus gives us these beatitudes to remind us of what it means to be a disciple. What it means to live out what the scriptures say. This morning, when you look at the Beatitudes, do you see Jesus? If you don't, the next question is why? You may not see Jesus in the Beatitudes this morning because you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You've never asked him to come into your heart and to change you from the inside out. Some of you this morning may not see Jesus in some of the Beatitudes because you're struggling with them. You know who Jesus Christ is, but your life isn't reflecting some of these Beatitudes. Whatever the situation is this morning, in a moment we're going to stand and sing a hymn. And during this time of invitation, this time of response, my prayer is that you do business with God. That you ask God to help you see Him through the Beatitudes. That if you don't know him as Lord and Savior, you'd ask him into your heart today. And if you do know him, ask him to help you in those areas you're struggling in.
the situation, whatever the case, when we stand and sing, do business with God, and do not leave this place the same way you came in. Father, this morning as we come to this sacred time, Father, we have heard your son's words proclaimed. Father, 2,000 plus years later, we hear the same words that were preached on the side of that hill on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Father, we can only imagine the sights and the sounds that can be heard as Jesus is teaching. He's teaching his disciples who are following him as rabbi and teacher. But he's also teaching those who just happen to be wandering by. The curious, the wanderers, those who are uncertain. This morning we may have some of those same individuals in this place. Father, this morning there may be some here who are searching. Father, there may be some here who are struggling. Father, there may be some here who have wandered away. The prayer, Father, is that we have allowed the words of your Son to penetrate our heart this morning. And Father, we understand there's a challenge to live out these Beatitudes. But Father, the reminder is when I see the Beatitudes, I see your Son and what he's done on the cross for my sin and the sins for everyone in this room. So again, this morning, as we get ready to stand and sing, Father, speak to the hearts of individuals. Father, may no one leave here unchanged. And Father, may everything we do bring honor and glory to you. Father, move as only you can do, and we're going to give you the glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's all stand.